is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Very good afternoon to you. Today you're going to be spending some time in the Esperance region on the state's south coast taking a look around a unique WA winery. We're the most eastern vineyard in Western Australia and the soil here is sand over gravel and clay. Uh, So we're quite distinct from the other wine regions in Western Australia. And what should be the first item on the agenda for the new state agriculture minister to tackle? Transport and freight uh, is a huge one. Uh, Obviously, we're seeing uh, what looks like a record grain harvest uh, on its way and the delivery process for getting that grain to port and so on is important. Now, money's been committed to those projects, but again, being held up because of delays and uh, approvals processes and other things that are very frustrating from an industry perspective. That is the Shadow Agriculture Minister, Colin de Grassa, and he thinks the priority for the new Agriculture Minister should be transport and freight. Do you agree or do you have other ideas? Let me know on the text 0448 Six past 12 here on the Country Hour. And Australia's mining sector is known for its dig it and ship it mentality. But there's been discussion this week around downstream processing options onshore. Pilbara Rural Reporter Michelle Stanley's been looking into it. Michelle, how significant could value adding be for Australia's mining sector? Huge, pretty much. So there are kind of two stories here. One is to do with the booming lithium sector and the other is to do with Australia's old faithful iron ore. So there's some analysis just released that has found a lithium battery production industry in Australia could be worth about $30 billion or even more. So it's pretty significant considering the current value of our exports of lithium is about $2.5 billion, so 12 times the value. When we look at steel, it's It's not necessarily a question of economic value, but it's more about the potential to significantly reduce CO2 emissions and with that bring jobs to Australia as well. Let's start with the potential of lithium then, Michelle, because that $30 billion figure did jump out at me. Where does that figure come from? Yeah, so this is when we look at the value of exports of raw spodumene, so that's what the what contains lithium, versus the value of a lithium battery. So 25 to $30 billion is the difference in those industries. The beauty of Australia is that we already have a lot of the components of lithium batteries, things like copper, nickel, rare earths, but there's currently no production of the batteries themselves. We're sort of, we have the ingredients, but we're not baking a cake. The thing is, instead, we're doing some mid-level processing, you know, where, where you might have heard of lithium hydroxide plants at Tianchi and Albemarle. So that's sort of like the halfway step between the raw lithium and a battery. That's worth about eight billion dollars. So three or four times the raw exports, but still nowhere near as significant as if we actually produced the battery itself. So what is holding back 
lithium battery manufacturing here in Australia? It is pretty energy intensive and it's really not cheap. But one of the biggest problems is actually to do with the fact that Australia no longer builds cars onshore. Because of the chemical makeup of these batteries, it's just a lot easier to keep all of the components relatively close by. But if we were to produce lithium batteries for electric vehicles, then they'd have to be shipped overseas. And that's kind of risky. Even without Australian built cars, CRU Group consultant David Royal actually thinks it could be a pretty lucrative market. If someone wants to take the plunge, it could be risky, but I think the reward would be potentially very large. If Australia kind of sits still and just continues its model of shipping it out, there could be a very big opportunity missed by not moving further downstream. So CRU consultant David Royal was saying that Australia kind of needed a fire under it to get things moving, which may be coming from government, maybe from industry, probably a mix of both. But he also said there's a lot of investor willingness to back Australian projects. So there's potential. This is the country on the ABC right across WA in the studio today. Pilbara rural reporter Michelle Stanley and Tess taking a look at the potential downstream processing for Australia's mining sector. You've just heard about the lithium processing and the potential for a $30 billion industry. Michelle, what about the iron ore sector? Yeah, this is very much a dig it up and ship it off mentality. And the problem with that is that steelmaking is really carbon intensive. It uses coal in the process and there are about 1.8 tonnes of carbon dioxide emitted for every tonne of steel produced. Iron ore and steel makes up about 7% of global um, CO2 emissions. So with the net zero targets, that really has to turn around. Phil Hodgson is the CEO of a company called Calix, and they've developed a zero emissions steelmaking technology called Zesty. So a lot of people may not realise that that iron ore is basically rust. (laughs) It's iron oxide. And to turn that into steel, you've basically got to rip that oxygen off the iron. What happens in steel making is you use carbon, you use coal, and that coal loves oxygen. But when that coal drags the oxygen off the iron oxide, it forms carbon dioxide. And that's why there's sort of 1.8 tonnes of CO2 emitted per tonne of steel made. But there's another compound or element that loves oxygen, and that's hydrogen. And so if you can use hydrogen, to rip the oxygen off the uh, iron ore to make iron, that just produces steam as a byproduct. By doing that, and by doing that here in Australia, if you can make a green iron here instead of just exporting iron ore, you can obviously start to decarbonise the whole of the global industry by making a green iron here capturing more value here because you're doing more here in Australia and obviously helping the global industry decarbonise. So that's the opportunity for us. So Phil Hodgson was saying that Calix's zero emissions process would actually use iron ore fines. That's the really fine particles, which are currently essentially a waste product for the iron ore sector, not the sort of big rocks you might see, which means it's not going to offset any exports yet. Now, Western Australia supplied 919 million tonnes of iron ore to the world last year. 
How much of that could go into onshore green steelmaking? It's a drop in the ocean at the moment. So Calix has a pilot plant which processes 2,000 tonnes of iron ore, a long way off that 919 million. It does have plans to build a commercial demonstration plant which would process 30,000 tonnes of iron ore, so a little bit better. Um, And that plant would likely be built near the major iron ore and hydrogen producers, so probably in the Pilbara. And it actually just received a grant from the Federal Government's Renewable Energy Agency, ARENA, worth um, nearly $1 million, and that'll help fund the design of that plant. What about the cost, though, Michelle? Does it compete with steel produced in China, for example? No, no way. It's really expensive. The difference here, I guess, is the value. The value is more in the zero emissions angle. So that's where demand for this kind of product would come from, and particularly with the new US and EU policies to do with low or zero carbon. CEO Phil Hodgson is expecting that the demand will definitely be there. Projects overseas that are looking to produce uh, green iron and green steel are already selling everything they can make. So, for example, Volvo is purchasing every tonne of green steel off a Swedish technology called Hybrid that is producing a green iron and steel. And so we're pretty confident that once we can start to produce this, uh, we'll find markets for it because there is a huge demand for zero emission steel and that demand will only increase over time. Now, aside from the company Calix that you just heard from there, are there any other companies in Australia looking at green steel production? In Australia, yes, FMG is the other big one. So it it announced early last year it would build a pilot processing facility and test a few of those sort of technologies and then build a commercial plant also in the Pilbara. I have touched base with FMG to see where those plans are at but haven't heard back yet. At the time, though, Andrew Forrest said that Australia as a whole could capture about 10% of the global steelmaking industry and it would create about 40,000 jobs, although these days I'm not too sure where you would get the workers but it's pretty significant. So potential lithium and steel processing here in Australia moving away from a purely bulk export model. Is there any idea when these changes might happen? Well, the commercial demonstration plant from Calix is expected to be up and running sometime during 2024, but the design hasn't yet been produced. So it's still some time away. The lithium industry, that really depends on industry and government interest. But with both of those industries, given the global move towards, you know, low or zero emissions, the experts are saying that it's inevitable. It's just a question of whether Australia will take advantage of it or whether it'll sit and sort of watch those opportunities pass by. Thank you for that, Michelle. Thanks, Wanda. Pilbara Raw reporter Michelle Stanley just taking a look at potential downstream processing for Australia's mining sector. Quarter past 12. This is the Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio WA. Shadow Agriculture and Food Minister Colin de Grasse is calling on the Premier to use the upcoming Cabinet reshuffle to bring the state government closer to the ag sector. The reshuffle was triggered after the Agriculture Minister Alana McTiernan announced she'll be leaving politics early next year. Colin de Grasse, how would you describe the current relationship between the state government and the agricultural sector? Well, I think it's uh, it's challenging, to be honest. Uh, you know, we've got a minister who has uh, been driven by a lot of ideology, I guess, and beliefs 
that don't always align with what agriculture does or wants to do. So I think there's been that really strained relationship for quite some time now. And we saw obviously the during the uh, early stages of the foot and mouth outbreak in Indo Indonesia, that really came to the fore when uh, the minister made some comments that uh, weren't particularly helpful. What are the other pivotal moments that led the relationship to this point, do you think? I think it was, uh, obviously there's a bit of history with uh, Alana McTinnon prior to this portfolio as well, which uh, agriculture <laughs> has not forgotten. Uh, and that includes things around live export, for example, and not advocating strongly for the continuation of that industry, which is incredibly important to Western Australian agriculture, but also in terms of biosecurity in general, not just international um, biosecurity either. I mean, the domestic biosecurity, there are a lot of issues playing out there where resourcing and adv advocacy on behalf of biosecurity hasn't been good enough. And I think if you look across uh, not just the agriculture portfolio, but other portfolios. So you've got issues where, for example, uh, major infrastructure projects that will benefit the agricultural supply chain are being held up because uh, approvals or other decisions aren't being made quickly enough. Now, it's the job of the Ag Minister to really strongly advocate for, the, for those uh, to happen and to make sure they do. And I'm not sure, uh, I'm not sure, and I certainly haven't seen that that's happening. So I think all of those things in combination have really added to uh, a strained relationship over the years for agriculture. Uh, and that's that's a, a real challenge that's got to be overcome by this government. How do you think Alana McTiernan will be remembered? Oh, look, firstly, anyone who survives that long in politics, uh, certainly is that's no main feat. And, uh, you know, whilst I personally don't always agree with Alana, I have the greatest respect for her. She's a, a very hard worker and very strong and passionate in the beliefs that she has. Now, those, those beliefs, unfortunately, haven't always aligned with agriculture. But I do think uh, people will remember her for, uh, for her, her strength of character and certainly for um, not being backwards and coming forwards about what, uh, what her views on particular issues are. What are the top priorities for agriculture that the state government should be addressing right now that might you know, help improve that relationship? And you pulled out a couple of examples just a few moments ago, mm. Colin. Sure. Well, the, the, the logistic one uh, or transport and freight uh, is a huge one. Uh, obviously, we're seeing uh, what looks like a record grain harvest uh, on its way and the delivery process for getting that grain to port and so on is important. Now, the Money's been committed to those projects, but again, being held up because of delays and uh, approvals processes and other things that are very frustrating from an industry perspective. So I think that's a that's a critical piece of the puzzle that needs to be addressed very quickly. Just um, on that, Colin, issues? what what does need to be done there? What what would you suggest? Because there is money coming in from the federal and the state government mm. to look at that but, supply chain here in WA. But what just keeps throwing money at it, or what what do you see as the no, solution? It's, well, in this case, it's not about the money. We know the money's there, but the, the process can't begin in because there are approvals process from a, a state government perspective that are just holding the whole process up. And those approvals processes really need to be, uh, you know, not to be shortcutted, but they just need to be fast-tracked and priority given to them because of the benefit to the state overall. And that hasn't happened. And I think, uh, you know, any new agriculture minister really needs to be banging on the door 
of her ministerial counterparts and saying, come on, you need to get your act together and make sure these uh, these projects can happen. So that's the, the kind of the logistics and freight pathway, which is a very important one. The other one, of course, uh, that's come to the fore recently is water. Water issues are all, always uh, important for agriculture. We've seen another a number of drought declarations and uh, dry season declarations over the past few years and most recently issues with the uh, water project Southern Water, Southern Forest Irrigation Scheme down in Manjama. Those sort of things need to be addressed quickly as well. Uh, and we need to ensure that farmers have access to, to water. Uh, obviously, in a drying climate, that it becomes more challenging, but it's still a very important piece of the puzzle that our Ag Minister needs to advocate for. Biosecurity, that's one that's not going to go away. And it's, it's unfortunately one that doesn't get a lot of attention until there's an issue. Uh, and I think we're really seeing that because of the machinery of government changes that the McGowan government made, that there's been a lot of um, hold-ups, I guess, to funding biosecurity properly, and we lost a lot of knowledge out of the department in that respect. So that really needs to be, to, the game needs to be improved there. And also, again, that's another advocacy across government here, because we've got certain government departments that are responsible for the biosecurity on their land but it's done by volunteers which is under deep herd and that there's a whole uh, complexity there that really isn't being addressed uh, and i think you know one of the most important jobs for uh, any minister for agriculture is to make sure that their own cabinet really understands how important this industry is right across Western Australia, whether it be part of uh, you know pastoral horticulture, agriculture, broadacre, or, or the livestock industry, uh, it really is important that the cabinet and the other ministers understand that this industry is one that supports uh, a great deal of regional communities, provides food for our Western Australians, of course, and, and for other others across the world. Uh, so it's really important to advocate on behalf of the industry within government as well. Well, the rumour mill is running hot, as you know, Colin, mm. and um, the, the name at the top of that list is Jackie Jarvis as a replacement uh, for the, and taking on the agriculture minister's role. What do you think? Is she the one for the job? Well, uh, ultimately, that's going to be a decision for the Premier. I'm not, uh, not sure of the machinations of the Labor Party in terms of union affiliations and all that sort of thing that sort of go, gets thrown into the, into the pot. And, but, but what do you know up. of her but, uh, and would she be a, a oh, good advocate from what you know? Oh, I, have, I have great respect for Jackie Jarvis. I think uh, she's, a, she's been a great performer in, in Parliament and, uh, and on the ground as a Member of Parliament. So it uh, be interesting to see if, uh, if she gets the gig. Mm-hmm. Who else do you think? Who else is in the running? I don't know. It's a good question. Um, <laughs> it, it, you know, really, when you look at it, uh, knowledge of agriculture and experience in agriculture within the Labor Party's uh, parliamentary representation is is pretty limited. So that actually makes it quite hard. So you've got to, you know, to try and find that that person with the right balance of understanding of industry as well as uh, perhaps not such strong ideologies is pretty challenging. Really good to talk to you, Colin. Thank you so much for your time here. No problem, Belinda. Thank you. Colin DeGrasse, he is the Shadow Agriculture and Food Minister. Just having a think about who might be Western Australia's next Agriculture Minister. If you've got an idea, shoot it through on the text and and maybe just um, prioritise those areas that the new Ag Minister should be addressing when that person is finally appointed. Colin pulling out transport and freight, so the supply chain issues, that should be a priority. He also mentioned biosecurity. 
Uh, what do you think? Zero double four eight nine double two six zero four is the text. Let me know. 24 past 12 here on the Country Hour. And the price of live cattle getting shipped to Indonesia has surged in recent weeks, with feeder steers out of Darwin getting well above $5 a kilo. Troy Setter from the Consolidated Pastoral Company says demand from Indonesia is picking up, which is great for Australian cattle producers, but Indonesian feedlots are facing a lot of challenges. So I think the live cattle trade, particularly out of northern Australia, is kicked up in the last couple of months. There was a fair bit of uncertainty and, and challenge to a lot of the importers in Indonesia in particular, uh, with foot and mouth and lumpy skin. We've now got vaccine in country, and, uh, and we've seen increase in numbers through October, November that looks like it'll flow through, to, uh, through into December. Uh, there's a couple of things. One, feedlots trying to refill in Indonesia but also get cattle on feed now for Ramadan and Labaran next year, which is at the back end of Q1. OK, I've, I've heard of some cattle, not all cattle, but some steers in the Northern Territory got around $5.30 a kilo the other day. Now, how palatable is that at the other end of the supply chain? Look, mate, yeah, five dollars thirty, and, and even out to five fifty the other day mm. is is sort of is very toppy. Um, that won't work on a you know animal by animal basis for importers at at this time. But you know they'll they'll be able to work averages. There's a you know, some optimism by some of the exporters and importers that they'll be able to get the price up in Indonesia. But I think you know that sort of five ten five twenty will work at a pinch. But you know, five thirty is tight, but. Um, you know, Indonesia has, has struggled uh, with foot and mouth disease control and lumpy skin control. The local herd has been uh, knocked around a bit. And uh, I think, you know, there'll be some shorts in the market at the back end of Q1 next year. What is your understanding on the latest in terms of, of those two main diseases, foot and mouth and lumpy skin? How is Indonesia going? Look, they're, they're both highly contagious diseases that are spread multiple ways and, and move rapidly. Indonesia's got about 65-ish million at-risk animals. About four and a half, five million animals have been vaccinated and a couple of million have had the disease. So we're starting to see some immunity build up, both natural and vaccinated immunity for foot and mouth, but the disease is still still prevalent. Um, they've done a really good job in Bali of, of getting it under control mm. and pleasantly, you know, we're starting to see a bit more focus on lumpy skin. Unfortunately, lumpy skin has now moved down into central Java and, uh, and that's, uh, that's a worry for all of us. Could it blow in on the wind to northern Australia this wet season? Look, I'm not a, uh, you know, Expert in the in the in trade winds and and uh, microscopic insects, but you know, listening to those that are, there is a chance there. It's pretty low. Um, it's pretty low. It, it's it's possible. I think we should be prepared for it if it did come this year, next year, five years, ten years, and uh, and have plans in place. But you know, the probability is is still being reported by the experts as being low for this year. But okay. we've got to be ready. On the vaccination rollout, there's been some reports that suggest that Indonesia's, you know, really working hard, but one of the drivers has been the G20 summit that's on, what, next week? Next week? Is there a concern that once the leaders leave, the, the foot might come off the accelerator? Look, I think for Bali specifically, there, there is some risk there. There was certainly a big push to get Bali cleaned up for, for G20 and the B20 and, and other events around that. 
but you know we've got the COVID response team headed by Professor Wiku, who's a you know exceptionally driven operator who's you know proven to be able to keep COVID under control in Indonesia, leading the foot and mouth recovery right. and vaccination program at the moment, and and he's he's got his his foot pretty flat on the accelerator and pushing people out of the way, and and hopefully he can be given you know continued space to get that done. And are you seeing enough focus on small livestock in Indonesia? In that all I've heard is that there's been a, such a focus on the cattle and the dairy, and yet you know there's a lot of smaller livestock out there. Yeah, there's there's more small stock in Indonesia than, than large stock. That said, though, if you look at the reporting on online, the government does daily reporting in Indonesia. We're now starting to see sheep, goats, pigs um, get uh, get vaccinated, and and that that program starting to move. They're they're not as clinically impacted as cattle and buffalo are uh, by foot and mouth and uh, and are not impacted by lumpy skin but um, yeah, it has been slow on the small stock and hopefully that continues to speed up. Troy Setter, he is the head of the Consolidated Pastoral Company and also the chair of LiveCorp and he was speaking to Matt Brand at the Live Exchange conference underway in Darwin. 29 past 12. Well, the new chair of Berries Australia wants the organisation to focus on helping growers affected by floods in the east while rising to meet growing demands. Berries Australia is a joint venture established by blueberry, strawberry, raspberry and blackberry grower groups to provide a united voice for what is now a billion-dollar industry. Anthony Pointer says the entire berry industry has undergone a massive growth spurt. Berries are now our largest fruit category in Australia. So that's it's tremendous um, you know, economic force in the industry. That's been fast evolution, very fast. You know, the, the industry's really come of age over the past, you know, 10, 15 years. Incredible improvement in the quality of fruit, which has really created demand from consumers to consume more and more of each of the berry types. And a lot of that's come from better growing, more people growing, better varieties, which just taste better and better processes too. So there's been a lot of progress over the past, you know, decade or more, and I see that progress continuing. On the other side, we have a lot of challenges, of course. Um, floods. Mm. Floods in northern New South Wales, floods in Victoria, very difficult weather events which come from these colliding jet streams in Queensland. So that's the most current issue, which is very difficult for some. Labor, an expert uh, and capable labour force to manage us through harvest is is really a top priority. We've had progress on that front, and uh, I'm pleased to say governments of both of all persuasions have have been assistance in this. But we can't forget that this is a very very significant challenge for us because we have incredibly beautiful fresh fruit, and it's all picked by hand. So we need the labour to do that, and that's what creates such a premium product both domestically and in export markets. Do you see that there's also opportunities to continue that fast-paced evolution and particularly when it comes to consumer demand and consumer awareness of Australian berries? I do. I do because, you know, we're all eating a lot of berries now, but why do consumers become aware of it? Largely if the fruit's good and they go and repurchase it because it was good. You brought it back into the kitchen, you put it in the fridge and uh, how many times do you hear of people saying... That punnet was consumed very quickly, and and that's that's the driver. We grow good fruit, and we grow better and better fruit, and and consumers demand it. 
consumers in Australia demand it and increasingly consumers in countries we export to will demand it more and more and more. Anthony Poiner from Smart Berries in Mandubra. He's now the new chair of Berries Australia and he was speaking to Kelly Buchanan. 28 to 1, Jonathan Beale is here. What's making the headlines? Thanks, Belinda. The Premier insists the state government is doing its best to manage the juvenile justice system. The comment comes amid calls to close Banksia Hill Juvenile Detention Centre and build new purpose-built facilities to improve rehabilitation programs for young offenders. Mark McGowan says the government acknowledges many detainees come from difficult backgrounds and many have fetal alcohol syndrome or mental health issues, but he says the system also has to protect the public and corrective services staff. The Home Affairs Minister says the federal government will stand with those affected by the Medibank data breach and has expressed particular concern for women who've had private information compromised. Sensitive customer data, including details of medical procedures such as abortions, have been posted online by hackers. Claire O'Neill says the government's focused on ensuring those affected can access help easily. And the federal government's industrial relations bill has passed the lower house of parliament and will now move to the Senate. A range of amendments to the Secure Jobs Better Pay Bill was supported by crossbenchers and the opposition, but voted down by the government. Labor relied on its numbers in the House to pass the bill. The vote of independent MP David Pocock is expected to determine its fate in the Senate. More news, Belinda at one o'clock. Thank you, Jonathan. 27 to 1. You're part of the Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio, WA. Moments ago, you heard from Colin DeGrasse. He's the Shadow Agriculture Minister and just sort of speculating about who might replace Alana McTiernan um, into the new year as the Agriculture Minister after Alana McTiernan announcing that she's going to step away from politics early next year. And the name Jackie Jarvis is certainly a front runner in the rumour mill, in the ag circles anyway, but keen to get your thoughts too. This from Terry in Esperance. Maybe Kyle McGinn from the Mining and Pastoral Region. There's another name to add to the mix. This from Georgie. Jackie Jarvis is the only good option for Agriculture Minister. Total respect for Jackie and what she might achieve. Uh, This from Rob, ultimately the Ag Minister should not use the department for her own ideology or their own ideology. McTiernan used Deep Herd wrongly as her climate change Trojan horse. This from Paul Brown, with a cabinet reshuffle coming up, another rumour is that Tony Booty will replace John Quigley as the Attorney-General. If that happens, then who will become the Minister for Lands? Still a very important role for the top two-thirds of Western Australia. 0448922604. And this text through too. Any word on how the sheep sale is going over east? Well, yes, there is a word. It's coming your way very shortly, heading over to Wagga Wagga. And yesterday you heard here, it was it looked like there was going to be around about 100,000 head yarded at Wagga. And that's as a result of, you know, the weather. Uh, the flooding, the rain, the flooding that's occurring and uh, farmers deciding to offload a lot of their sheep. Taking you there shortly here on the Country Hour. 25 to 1, off to the Bureau of Meteorology. Joey Rawson, what is going on in the Southwest Land Division today? Any storms or rain about today? Yeah, there sure is. There's a couple of things going on, Belinda. We've got a, a weak cold front that's crossing the Southwest at the moment, so that's uh, bringing some shower activity um, looking at rainfall figures with that, 
um, especially through the south coast, somewhere like south of you know, Margaret River to Bremen Bay, that Albany area, getting up to about 15 to 25 millimetres. But then as it pushes inland, those rainfall figures are going to drop off considerably. So halfway through the Great Southern, um, you'll get maybe uh, one to five. And then by the time you get to the northern boundary of that Great Southern, then you're expecting not much at all. So that's the first thing going on. The next thing is we've got some thunderstorms firing off in the southeast coastal district at the moment and, and parts of the southern goldfields. And they're going to um, be going for most of the afternoon. So if you're under a thunderstorm there, there's a potential to get some decent falls. So looking at around 10 to 20 millimetres through uh, the um, area sort of east of Esperance to Israelite Bay. Um, so yeah, 10 to 20 with the potential, if you get unlucky, to get 30 millimetres. So um, yeah, that's occurring for today. And then as we track on to tomorrow... A really uh, solid low-pressure system develops uh, just south of basically the south coast. So um, those showers are going to continue through the southern districts tomorrow. Um, so 10 to 20 millimetres possible through most of those southern districts uh, tomorrow. And then as we get on to Saturday, it's going to be really wet and cold, especially through that coastal parts of uh, the Albany to Esperance area. Get this low that really spins up. So it's going to be windy, showery and quite cold. And there is a potential to get 20 to 30 millimetres through, you know, those southern coastal districts through, uh, especially Albany to Esperance. And it's not until we get to Sunday when this stuff starts pushing out to the east and we get a high pressure system um, push across the state. So um, that rain will push uh, basically east of Esperance on Sunday. And then on Monday, just some light showers on the south coast. But Certainly some cold conditions coming. Uh, Albany looking at 15 degrees for the next couple of days. So uh, pretty cold for this time of year, Belinda. Yeah, I'm getting desperate for some sort of more summer type weather. So if you can manage that, Joey, that would be great in the next couple of weeks or so. What is going on in the north of the state? How are the temperatures in northern parts and then taking a look into eastern parts of the state? Yeah, so it's certainly a different story in the north. We've got temperatures well and truly in the 40 degree mark and and we are um, going to give you a 30-degree temperature for Perth next week, Linda. So oh, there, are there it is. Good. Warm conditions <laughs> coming. It's not, not summer ended already. So, um, so yeah, we've got some thunderstorms uh, developing over the eastern parts of the Kimberley. And they're seasonal. They're, they're the thunderstorms that we get through most parts of summer. And that's going to continue through uh, the next four or five days. And so just hot and humid and... Um, yeah, those sunstorms continuing on each afternoon and evening. And then the warnings for this afternoon? Yeah, so we've just got uh, coastal wind warnings, especially for that cold front uh, that's moving through at the moment. So uh, those warnings stretch all the way from the Perth coastal waters right around the southwest capes um, through the Bunbury, Geograph Coast, Lewin Coast and Albany Coast. And we've got a warning for the Pilbara Coast East as well, Belinda. Thank you so much for going through those details, Joey. 21 to 1, taking a look at the rainfall figures with Richard Hudson. Yeah, and there's not too many to get through either. In the northern and eastern forecast districts, the only region to get any significant rain was the Kimberley again. Flora Valley and Yulumbu had 7 and Theta 12. And then in the southwest land division forecast districts, in the southwest, Brunswick Junction had 5 and Ludlow had five as well, and then nowhere else really recorded anything. But, um, Bill, this morning, did you happen to hear the news headlines at 7.30 on ABC... 
Perth Breakfast Show? Ah, yes, I did. I know exactly where you're going here. Yes. Well, to be more precise, I wasn't so interested in the headlines. Well, I am. But uh, what grabbed my attention was what was said by our experienced ABC newsreader, Ali Colvin, who has a farming background. Thanks, Tom. There'll be more news at eight o'clock. Ali, I'm still coming to terms with the story you told earlier mm. this morning mm. about the the wool fat. Mm. Oh, minor detail there. It's not. It's not the fat from the wool. It's oh. the fat from the actual sheep, which is probably even more gross, really. Yeah. So when you slaughtered the the sheep, and that's what I grew up eating, mutton basically. They stored the fat and used it to make candles and as grease and. Yeah, and you've gone back east after mm. someone's died to help sort of cl- yep, clear up the farm, farm mm-hmm. and you've found, found barrel several forty-four gallon drums of fat. Mm. Yeah, mm. which doesn't go off, Tom. It's beautifully preserved. Yeah, mm. um, thank you for sharing that. Put, with, put you off meat yeah. for life. No, it? it's it's changed my whole outlook <laughs> for the day. Actually, happy to help, Tom. <laughs> Good on you, Ali. And Ali will be back in twenty-eight minutes with all the news. And she'll be back with all the latest on those drums of fat. What I'm wondering is, how many other drums of fat are there sitting around on farms at the moment? Any aged barrels or drums of rich sheep fat that have been preserved so well? And if so, how much have you got on your property? And do you have memories of making candles out of it? (laughs) The text number is 0448. 922604. Maybe, as Ellie mentioned, you might have greased some machines with it, or maybe you've had some other uses as well. So, yeah, 0448 I'm very keen to hear. Yeah, let us know what you know on the text. It is 19 to 1 here on the Country Hour. A few more texts coming through about uh, who might make a good... Ag Minister for Western Australia and what should be the priorities for that minister when that person is appointed. Uh, Laurie says, I find it ironic that the Liberals demonise ideology when it is ideological difference that give us our democratic two-party system. Brett in Meriden says, whoever is the next Ag Minister, one of their main priorities should be looking at the price difference between CBH and the other grain merchants. They could put a submission into the ACCC to rectify what seems to be collusion. Uh, Brett, I did put a call in, a request into the ACCC to talk about that price difference and I got a message back, an email back saying they're choosing not to comment on that. So the request was definitely made and we just can't get a comment from the ACCC at this point. Uh, This is the Country Hour, 18 to 1. Just before 1 o'clock, off to Mount Barker for the results of the cattle sale today. But first, off to the other side of the country, because yesterday you heard the Wagga Wagga sale was expecting a record-sized yarding today of over 100,000 sheep, huge numbers being offloaded due to ongoing flooding in the area. Paul Martin manages the Wagga Wagga Livestock Marketing Centre. So let's find out from him how this morning's sale went. So 107,000 uh, was what we drew for yesterday morning at 10 o'clock, or half past 10 yesterday morning. That was uh, quite a staggering figure for everybody in the, you know, operationally on site to get their heads around for today. We went back out and revisited that number yesterday afternoon about 3 o'clock. Uh, where we saw the numbers uh, drop back to about 90,000 thereabouts. Um, and then this morning, after the stock have started arriving and we've got a, a reasonable a reasonable quantified estimate of about 80,000, 81,000 for the day. So 
still quite a quite a significant number of stock to sell for the day, but uh, the facility and the and the agents are well and truly up to the task. Why do you think it dropped back so much? Oh well, I think there would be a multiple a number of factors there. I guess once you start talking those numbers, logistics starts to play a, a major role in that um, availability of transport to get stock in and out. Um, maybe that number did have a bit of a send a bit of a a decision-making point out to some some producers if they weren't in a in a situation where they needed to sell today or it might not have been in their best interest they might have wanted to just hold off and see what the market did with that sort of number so yeah there would be a multiple number of factors that have changed the the number today yeah that 107 would that have been a record for Wagap? uh absolutely well if we get the 80 uh if we get the 80 Today that'll be that'll be a new record about five six thousand above uh, the standing record here on site. I think it was back twenty twelve somewhere around there maybe twenty twelve. I'd stand corrected on that, um, but it was uh, that was a record set through drought years. Uh, so this is uh, this is vastly different as well to see a record or a number of stock at, at this at this time of year, and we're we're talking real good quality finished stock. You know, so it's uh, it's a really it's a real positive for it's a positive for the producers. It's a positive for you know everybody involved. Why do you think it's so high? Why are you getting so many numbers? Uh well, again too, I think there'll be a multiple number of factors there. You know, the continued wet. You know, seeing the 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 impact that the Lachlan flooding there through Forbes has had. Forbes is our closest uh, large sheep selling centre to to Wagga, um, so. I'm, Logic would say that anything south of the Lachlan that is ready for market is, you know, may well be coming here instead. At the end of the day, too, it's it's a seasonal or it's it's considered a, a standard sort of seasonal movement of the stock that will see our numbers increase this time of year. So I guess that impacted with the with the wet people having access to to their stock and and transport. You know, it's all sort of accumulating into one point. Paul Martin, the manager of the Wagga Wagga Livestock Marketing Centre, speaking to Simon Wallace about today's record yarding, 81,000 sheep at Wagga Wagga in New South Wales. Not quite what they were expecting, but still 81,000 head of sheep. And if you remember from yesterday here at Katanning, uh, just to put that figure into perspective, just under 7,000 yarded at Catanning yesterday. Uh, just before one o'clock, off to Mount Barker for the results of the cattle market. 14 to 1 here on the Country Hour. And if you were asked to name the top WA wine regions, you'd probably think, you know, Margaret River, straight up the top. Uh, the Great Southern, maybe the Swan Valley come immediately to mind. But maybe you need to expand that regional footprint a little bit because a family-owned vineyard in the Esperance region is steadily increasing production. Conding Up Vineyard was founded by Jim and Christine Crichton in the 1990s and their daughter Anita says Esperance is a unique place to make wine. We're the most eastern vineyard in Western Australia and the soil here is sand over gravel and clay. Uh, So we're quite distinct from the other wine regions in Western Australia. We have more unique varieties like Tauriga National and Tinakeo and with the climate here uh, we have the opportunity to make some really fruit forward wines and 
some sort of more medium body versions of some of the better known Australian wines. The Esperance region is certainly not known for its grapes. Um, you know, it's not what it's famous for, I guess, in terms of primary production. What are some of the challenges of running a commercial vineyard here? I think for us, quite often, the main limiting factor is water. We're reliant entirely on what falls from the sky, and that obviously varies year by year. This year, it's not going to be a problem. That in in previous years, we've had the issue of not having enough water to irrigate and having to drop quite a lot of fruit on the ground so that the vines have enough water to finish off the grapes that are left. Could you maybe just give a brief overview of how the winery started here? Back in the early 90s, my parents and my dad in particular, I think, was a bit over looking after sheep. And so he found a land use study that was done in the 60s that suggested this area would actually be quite good for wine grape production. That idea sort of incubated in his mind and he, in 94, 95, started planting the vineyard with my mum. There was a bit of a a break during your mother's health battles and then you reopened it in 2017 with your father. How has it been over the past five years? Has it grown much? Has it been a success in your eyes? In 2017, when we first started back, we had quite a small harvest of around one and a half tonnes and just made two wines. And from then, we've increased the yield to this last year, we harvested six and a half tonnes. And we now have six wines available in our cellar door and we have another three or four wines just about ready to bottle and release. That's quite a big increase over time and do you expect this to keep growing and in terms of the, the yields and the production? Yes, so I think the yields, we can manage to increase the yields probably for the next three or four years as we get the vineyard back into full production and the types of wine that we produce, there will be an upper limit but I think there's a few more varieties that we can get to bottle. It's very satisfying to be able to take the grapes from the fields and follow them through the whole process into the bottle. Your mother sadly passed away in 2015. She was such an influential figure in the Condingup community. How influential was she in developing your interest in winemaking and your goal of coming back and reopening the business here with your dad? Yeah, my mum as well as my dad were both really passionate about about growing the grapes and about making wine and selling the wine. And my mum was especially really passionate about getting her product out there. And I know she was really proud of the wines that her and my dad made. So coming back here and getting the vineyard back into production, it is quite satisfying to see her hopes and dreams sort of coming true as well. Conding up, vineyard winemaker Anita Crichton speaking to Hayden Smith, nine to one. Well, can you believe it's the 20th anniversary of the screw cap being used on wine bottles? If you're a bit younger, say under 35 or so, you might be surprised to know in the early 2000s, only 2% of Australia's white wines were bottled under screw cap. 
And that figure now stands at 98%. So Demetria Panagiotaris tried to find out what prompted the switch from cork to cap. When you head into your local bottle to grab your favourite wines, you probably don't overthink the fact that most of the wines you see have a screw cap. But in the early 2000s, cork dominated the tops of bottles and screw caps were known as a trialled but failed experiment. However, all that was set to change after 14 winemakers from the Clare Valley met in a pub one night. Andrew Hardy explains. The, the corks ain't problem in world wine, but especially in Australian wine at the time was huge. And through the 90s, we were paying a lot of money for what was supposed to be really good corks and they were not. And we were getting huge cork tank problems. The winemakers in Clare Gangham's got together and, and we started talking about doing screw caps. Remembering that screw caps had been done before in the um, late 60s, early 70s. It wasn't brand new technology. But it, it fell foul of uh, people didn't like it back then in the 70s. It was not received well back then. We thought we could change that perception. What came after that discussion was what Mr Hardy called a media blitz. They literally hit the road to show people exactly what screw caps could do. Once the consumers started seeing it, the convenience factor came in as well. They didn't need a corkscrew anymore. But it really was, it was not at all about convenience. It was all about quality in the bottle. And, we, and you know, that's, we were able to show people. And really, we were only in the beginning of people drinking table wine in Australia. Because you know, up until the early 60s, it was a fortified industry. You know, most people drank port, beer and tea. Um, so the, you know, the wine boom hadn't, had only just really started in Australia. So I think that the learning curve was very quick. People sort of got to realise that, that it didn't taste any good, some of these wines. So they, they were more willing to change. But the publicity and the and the promotion that we did was vital. You know, the whole the whole wine world looked at what we were doing with real interest and um, as you know, saw an opportunity. Winemaker Hilary Mitchell from Mitchell Wines recalls her family being the first to go all in, bravely bottling both their red and white wines, and she backed it completely. One of my first jobs, actually, when I was at university, was doing the in-store tastings for mum and dad. So I'd go around to bottle shops and everybody would be asking, like, what is this? How do you open it? (laughs) Isn't it just for cheap wines? And I was the face on the street (laughs) trying to explain it to the customers. But people liked the fact that they could open it quickly and easily and put the screw cap back on. And it was just those initial kind of people missing the romance of cork. But once they realised it was easier and better quality, it was a no-brainer. 20 years later, I mean, some people drinking wine now probably never even had a corked wine. They don't know the world without screw cap. <laughs> so they probably wouldn't realise that it was something 20 years ago that happened in a, in a pub in Clare. I mean, it was such a great idea for the winemakers, realising they had one of their best 2002 vintages on hand, just put it aside in the vault, thinking we're going to do this tasting in 20 years, just to show how well our wines age and how we could do that, only ever do that with screw cap. Tony Battelline, CEO of Australia Grape and Wine, says that although there was some hesitancy in the beginning, the Clare Valley's influence on the global shift was immense. Well, what we were concerned about was the fact that consumers wouldn't accept wine under screw cap. We thought that people liked the sound of the cork coming out and the theatre of a cork being taken out of the bottle. 
So it, that, after that initial trial, I guess, from the, the, the Clare Valley, it started to get adopted around the world. And what we found was consumers actually liked it. It was convenient. And that was really important in that you didn't have to have a corkscrew in your back pocket. So uh, it was a gradual thing. But now with probably 98% of wine in Australia is produced under a screw cap. I, I, think, I think absolutely we were the leaders in it. And because Australia went to screw cap so quickly, because of the quality aspect and because we exported a lot to markets like the United Kingdom back back then and the United States in particular, those two markets started to adopt this. Then everyone else saw that it was working because those consumers would, would try take it. So I think our influence was the pathfinder was immense. Australian Grape and Wine CEO Tony Battelline ending that report by Demetria Panagiotaris. It is four minutes to one off to Mount Barker for the results of today's cattle sale and 1,186 were yarded today, so numbers down 150 on last week. Tracy Kilner, can you go through the details? Numbers were up with Wiener cattle dominating numbers. Weights and prices were up on last week in this category with demand from feeder and restocker buyers. Medium weight wiener steers sold to a top of 620 cents, while the heavyweight yearling steers reached 526 cents a kilo. The wiener steers sold from 508 to 600 cents for lightweights, medium weights returned 522 to 620 cents, and the heavyweight calves made 500 to 588 cents a kilo. Wiener heifers returned 462 to 512 cents for lightweights, 440 to 522 cents for the medium weights, and calves over 330 kilos returned 420 to 448 cents a kilo. Yearling steers gained, making 440 to 526 cents, while the yearling heifers eased, selling from 372 to 478 cents a kilo. Grown steers weighing under 500 kilos made 450 to 492 cents. Heavier weights returned 386 to 454 cents. And bullocks over 600 kilos sold for 396 cents a kilo. The grown heifers weighing under 540 kilos sold from 300 to 450 cents. And heavier weights averaged 340 cents a kilo. Heavy prime cows made from 250 to 330 cents. And the heavy bulls made 210 to 320 cents to average 310 cents a kilo. This has been Tracy Kilner for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service. Tracy, thank you for that. It's two minutes to one on the Country Hour, and ABC News reader Ellie Colvin was uh, talking about one of her relatives who stored sheep fat in drums on their farm back in Victoria, and the drums were there for years. Well, Flora has just called through from Esperance, and Flora, hello. You've got a few memories of dealing with sheep fat as well. What do you remember? Yes, I have, (laughs) from when I was only a kid. Um, My grandma and my mum used to make soap. And how did they do that? How did they make the soap from well, sheep fat? I can't fat? remember the, the recipe. I've got an idea it had lye in it, but it was put in the old copper. Now, this I tested <laughs> tested your gentleman friend, Richard. He couldn't remember what a copper was, apart from being a policeman. Um, the old washing copper was a, a cast iron device with a fire underneath it and a copper insert that held your clothes and you boiled your sheets and all your whites and got your hot water from it and all that sort of thing. So they used the, they put the fat and boiled it up somehow or other in the copper with additives and as I say, I think lye was one of the ingredients but I, I know the ladies used to wear gloves to protect their hand, not rubber gloves, just ordinary gloves, but anyway. 
Was it was um, it smelly while they were making it? Do you know? Not a lot, not a lot, because you can um, you can boil fat down and and make your own um, purified um, mutton fat easily, and it really doesn't. It's it's no worse than boiling a leg of mutton, really. Oh not. well, look, thank, I'm glad that's um, brought back a memory for you, Flora. It's really lovely to have you here on the Country Hour. Thank you, and it's one o'clock.